We're continuing on with Galatians. And last week, in our Galatians series, uh, I taught from the Gospels, and specifically the story of the little children in Jesus. And uh, kind of titled the message, Why is Paul so mad? And the idea was to paint a picture of Jesus to juxtapose against how people were representing or trying to promote Christianity in a way that was totally at odds to the person of Jesus. And uh, just, I encourage you to go back and listen to it and uh, kind of go through the prayer exercise at the end. I think this is really important. And basically the idea is this. We believe, if we believe that God is exactly like Jesus, Jesus is the whole heart of God manifest in human form in a way we can grasp, in a way that the people in the Old Testament and Hebrew scriptures saw a shadow, and sometimes uh, they didn't know what to make of it, but the New Testament says we have the crystal clear revelation in Jesus. And what that is, is a Jesus who is unable to be annoyed by disruptive children, but gets really terse or upset with religious people that try to exclude kids or religious people who get annoyed by kids. We uh, talked about imagining every word of Jesus spoken in the tone of that kind of guy. We imagined Jesus, whenever Jesus speaks, it's in such a tone that the people who are ashamed of every lifestyle choice they've made, people who are ashamed of every physical, mental disability, or ashamed of their economic status, or ashamed of their uh, lack of religious knowledge, or ashamed of their heritage and what family they were born to, or their ethnicity. These are the people that would brave the crowds of those who shamed them. They would brave the crowds of those who shamed them to get a front row FaceTime with Jesus. And if Jesus spoke like we see a lot of televangelists or angry Christian YouTubers, or uh, the Christian talking heads who go on talk radio or certain networks to supposedly represent our faith. Jesus doesn't have any likeness compared to those guys because Jesus is a guy, no matter where you're coming from, unless you're like a religious influencer who likes oppressing other people and is a bully, those people did, the only reason they would go to lunch with Jesus is try to catch him screwing up. They would try to catch him screwing up. But imagine that the most embarrassed, shamed people are dying, not only to be in the front row to see Jesus, but they're blown away by the opportunities to sit as equals with Jesus breaking bread. Because in the ancient Near East, to break bread with someone was to say, I fully accept you into my circle of trust. So it wasn't just going through a cafeteria and sitting at the same table as someone else. To have dinner with someone was of great social uh, and spiritual and relational meaning and worth. So if the most embarrassed, the people who struggle the most, the most mentally and physically vulnerable people wanted to have face-to-face -face time with Jesus, then he didn't speak in the way that many of us have been inclined to read his words. For instance, when you read uh, the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus says, uh, why are you uh, trying to take the speck of wood out of someone else's eye when you have a big log in your eye? 
I've, uh, I, I admit, there's times where I heard that, like the booming voice of Jesus saying, how dare you, how dare you try to take this speck out of someone's eye when you've got a log in your eye and you're supposed to feel ashamed and all that. Now I realize Jesus is kind of trying to get some laughs while dropping a major truth bomb on people. And that is, guys, it, let's be experts at our brokenness. And maybe sometimes we need to be agnostic about other people's issues. Let's be experts on ourselves. And incidentally, little uh, side note there, it's one reason why people, I've sometimes been told I criticize the church or I'm not representing Jesus well because I, uh, I highlight uh, maybe Christians or organizations that are doing bad things. The reason being is I don't want to criticize any other group or any other religion per se, but I want to clearly differentiate my Jesus from people I believe are either misrepresenting my Jesus or excluding my Jesus, or um, people who have abused power in the name of Jesus. And that's called the critic critique from within. It's one thing to call out someone else's culture. It's most of the time not a good idea, but it is a good time to confess your own failings or the failings of your culture. And if you ever feel the need to point out something an area of brokenness in another culture or people group, make sure that you are a master at speaking truth to misuses of power within your people. All right, so that's a whole, anyway, that's a little side note, but it's good. So these exercises of the Jesus who attracted the shamed, who wanted to have ice cream with them, those guys, Paul is specifically rebuking a group of people who were infiltrating a church that were outside Paul's home culture. These were Gentiles and Jewish Christians, but there were a lot of people, outsiders, people who were part of the Roman Empire that weren't uh, Israeli. People that would be seen as either outsiders, losers, or even the enemy. And this group of hyper-religious fundamentalists from Jerusalem comes in, and riding on Paul's coattails, they try to add their culture to the simple story of Jesus in the work of Christ told by Paul. And this is a human inclination. When we reduce this embodied storyline of the word made flesh and dwelt amongst us, Jesus was embodied because the only way humans can know God is in an embodied fashion. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. But there's a temptation of religious people to take all the teachings of Jesus. If God wanted to give us an instruction manual, he would have. But instead, he gives this library of books in many different genres, some we're still trying to figure out, that tell this overarching, amazing meta story that culminates in Jesus loves you, he loves us, and he's bringing the people together and renewing the world so we can experience the deepest sense of life for eternity and conquering evil and uh, forever too. That's, that's a good part of it too. So, but imagine if you take this epic story and turn it into a set of rules, you are disembodying the faith. You're taking this uh, dirt under the fingernails, laboring in the soil, breaking a sweat, laughing till you ache, crying till you've got big wrinkles, the full spectrum of human emotions, and you've emasculated it, you've boiled it down to nothing. You think you've distilled it, but you've killed it. 
I like that. You think you've distilled it, but you killed it. When you take the story and you turn it into a code or a set of rules. And this is what happens when we marry our home culture to our faith. Because following Jesus is for all cultures. But my Western culture isn't for everyone. In fact, we know that cultural diversity is an internal reality. If you believe the story of scriptures, at the renewal of all things, the renewal of the heaven, the new heavens, the new earth, redeemed creation, fully human humans, more human than we've ever thought human could be, with an eternity of experiences and creations and expanding creation to explore and create art and fellowship and eat food. But the scriptures say every tribe, tongue, and nation will be worshiping Christ in that eternity, which means cultural distinctions are eternal. Now, every culture, my uh, Midwestern, Ohio, American, white cultural experience has some things I enjoy about it. It's also got some insidious baggage to it. It's, a, it's mixed, and that's true with every culture. Uh, but imagine everything good about my culture, gooder than it's ever been, and all the bad is gone, and I'll be able to represent this tiny little micro, microscopic facet of not only all the cultures that exist in the world now, but think of all the cultures from the beginning of humankind having representatives, every tribe, tongue, and nation. You realize their civilizations, though they have been wiped out, God had reached out to them. Or there's cultural ways. Our culture has evolved over the years. Imagine every iteration of our language and culture having human representatives in eternity, maintaining cultural distinctions with perfect community. Guys, I've been married to one amazing woman for coming up on 26 years right now, and we have so many cultural similarities, and we're still working it out. We're still working it out. Imagine perfect community with every culture that's ever existed, redeemed, without the bad stuff. That is eternity. It is enfleshed. It is embodied. The Judeo-Christian tradition doesn't talk about our spirits becoming little angelic, ethereal beings floating around on clouds uh, with these little doe-eyed, baby-faced, precious moment garbage. It talks about a human experience that's full, that is part of an ever-expanding universe of beauty and creativity. We'll never run out of exploration. We'll and not only that, imagine how species will grow and adapt eternally. Imagine that we'll never be able to catalog and name all the species out there because they keep evolving and growing and being created. This embodied eternity is amazing. And imagine all that with no abuse of power, no misogyny, no uh, judgmental, no shame, no materialism, no rat race, no COVID-19, no red and blue fighting it out, no, uh, uh, no cable news. I mean, it's going to be amazing. But if we pollute our faith with our culture. Now, God meets us in our culture, but if we impose our culture on other people, that devolves this story of every tribe, tongue, and nation to being a set of rules plus our cultural values. And listen, every culture has a rear end. Every culture has a beautiful side 
every culture has a rear end. And whatever culture you were born into, it's quite likely there's some really anti-Jesus stuff in that culture that you're not even aware of. God is so merciful. But our faith, if our faith is embodied, embodied means in-storied. A bodily faith is acted out by a human being. And an embodied faith is not debated. It's a story that is told. The human brain spends, according to the latest and greatest science from what I know, the human brain expends so much energy taking almost an innumerable amount of data points and simplifying and screening and filtering them out until it becomes a story. We take in all this data. I mean, if I look at every detail in this room that since Ian moved out is rather Spartan, but there's still so many details. I could focus on one element and probably spend a lifetime describing it. But my brain simplifies it to a story. And we see this in the scriptures. Um, my wife and I have been, uh, we, we read a little bit of scripture uh, every morning. Uh, it's nothing really deep. We just ask God's presence. We read a chunk. We share any reflections. Uh, we pray the Lord's Prayer and we ask each person, how can I be present to you this day? And then we pray. It's really simple. Um, sometimes I do it before I'm even awake. A lot of times I try to at least have a cup of coffee. But anyway, we were doing uh, uh, the wedding, water to wine, the beginning of the book of John. Book of John calls it the first sign. Now, John is not chronological. John takes these events and he's more of the artist. He's more of the poet. John writes like no one else. And one of the best ways to read John is Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. And if you keep cycling through those, you'll get John. If you try to make John and Matthew work together, it's just not going to work. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke have an account of Jesus clearing out the temple, turning over the tables because the money changers had set up a mini mall and a check cashing joint in the only place Gentiles were welcome to worship in the Jewish temple. And Jesus quotes a verse from Isaiah saying, this is my house of prayer for all nations. And you have squared it up. The whole point was Jesus, they drew out of it that this faith culminates in the great commission at the end of Matthew of to go into all the world with this story and become an actors. A disciple is someone who follows and lives as like Jesus. The way we do it is we eat the story of Jesus till we sweat the story of Jesus, until we have the stank of the story of Jesus, until we can improvise Jesus-y with the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Now, John, at the beginning of his book, tells the same story, but he doesn't even quote the verse that Jesus quoted. Rather, he makes it a point that Jesus is saying, you know, this temple is basically Jesus disses the temple, and that's the point. They're saying, how can you do this in the temple? And Jesus basically in a uh, indirect way says, I'm the temple. And he says this, he says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will rebuild it. Now that the Jewish temple got destroyed in AD 70, and it hasn't been rebuilt since. I got to spend quite a lot of time exploring the ruins in 96. It was awesome, but it was destroyed. All that's left is, you know, the Wailing Wall, etc. Well, anyway, John saw the story in the way he distilled the story is he did this thing that we sometimes do in television where he ends with something happening towards the end of the story. He transports it to the beginning of the book and then he ties in uh, 
all these elements that catch us up back to the point of Jesus dies and rises again. All right? Both of them are transformative stories. If you just try to hybridize those stories, if you try to take each tale from each story and harmonize it, press it into one story, guess what we, we've done? We've destroyed the beauty of the individual stories. God, when we turn, when we try to uh, have a cold, uh, disembodied analysis of God's story, we miss all the fun. And frankly, what I've seen is that inclination to dissect, distill, to uh, 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 boil it down to the essence of a few timeless truths generally accompanies meanness, grumpiness, and every kind of systemic evil that has ever been justified in Christendom. Whether it's been misogyny, whether it's been slavery, the list goes on. What I've noticed is that every tradition that lets the, the system of theology, every tradition that lets these timeless truths, as they see it, subsume the narrative that is embodied, ends up systemically doing bad things. And this is a much longer story. I've been doing quite a bit of research on this lately and realizing a lot of times history is written about powerful people that have appropriated this story to do great evil. It's the worst form of cultural appropriation ever is to take Jesus, the man of mercy, to exert power and oppression over others. I mean, come on, guys. And you know what? A lot of people think they're deconstructing from faith and they're really deconstructing from a disembodied spirituality of an embodied story that doesn't work. And frankly, if you grew up with rules-based, non-narrative Jesus, you didn't grow up with Jesus and he invites you today. So Galatians 2.20, I'll see if I remember it. I, I, I memorized this with a bunch of verses. I, in 1985 is the first time. And um, the significance of it didn't hit me until years later when I discovered that the Judeo-Christian tradition was pretty much the only historic tradition from those times that said our bodily experience of humans is dignified, of value, of worth, and we bear the image of God. Most every form of spirituality minimized the importance of the body. Most every, uh, like especially what evolved to be Gnosticism was existence is good, spirit, I mean, existence is bad, spirit is good. And I know Elaine Pagels and all the Gnostic beliefs have kind of been remixed and made to be vogue in the past 15 or so years. But keep in mind, uh, same guys that came up with this disembodied counterfeit of Christianity also uh, thought all women were evil because they were the ones that made us get into bodies because they gave birth to babies. This is pretty, mis you know, Gnosticism has traditionally been pretty misogynistic, blaming women on the fact human, we have bodies and uh, it's a bummer. Anyway, that's a bigger story. But this verse, Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but not I, but Christ is living through me. In the life I live in my body, I live by faith in the God who loves me and gave himself for me. There's so much in this. The life I live in the body, I live by faith. That phrase flies in the face of almost every other spiritual narrative. 
I mean, I know there's probably some exceptions, but the disembodied ideas, the code of conduct versus the friend who fills us. Even in uh, the prophets said that the law would be written on our hearts, meaning God would give us a relational change. Has anyone been married for 25 years? I'm coming up on 26. You know what I find out? Adrian and I become more alike every year. We're still very distinct people, but we take on each other's attributes because we spend so much time together. Uh, she has fallen in love with certain things I value. I've fallen in love with certain things she values. That's part of intimacy. Well, when we spend time with Jesus through the power of his spirit, it is a head, heart, hand experience, right? Head, heart, hand. Disembodied spirituality keeps it in the head. And guys, I grew up in this idea that our thoughts and our emotions were put at odds with one another. And actually that has its roots in ancient uh, Greco-Roman paganism. The separation of emotion and ideas. But uh, the most vibrant traditions of Jesus followers have always thought of the human experience, not the mind, feelings, and works. In fact, that's why, I mean, you look at all the fights between the Roman Catholic Church and the, the Protestants, and I find beauty in both traditions, but both traditions have really tried to de-storify our faith. All right, that's why I'm a Jesus follower. I'm not really a denominational partisan, if you will. I, I like something about all of them almost. But the deal is, is imagine going to war over different beliefs about theology in bringing violence to the table. How many times has, I mean, that's why it's like, you know what? I'm not going to try to uh, boil down my following in Jesus into a political system or try to say this uh, Democrats or Icans or isms or whatever are the, you know, I want to be a follower of King Jesus who infiltrates whatever system is prevailing and all my loyalty uh, causes me to speak truth to everyone, to not be, to, to love humans, to maybe be engaged in human society, but to not be partisan because I don't need some political party. I'm a royalist following the God that loves kids in Iraq as much as he loves kids like my daughter who's in the room with me right now. If we boil down the story, if we disembody the story, we miss the fun. Paul says, the life I live in the body, I live by faith. This might be part of the reason why out of the countless mystery religions, some of which we've been able to catalog, most of which we don't know exactly what they believe. If you're someone who likes to follow the latest uh, studies on what different ancient people groups believed, it's, it's really thrilling. Uh, it's really good if you're a role-playing gamer, if you want to build some, you know, D&D scenarios. Uh, history is always a good place to start, according to the great Kenneth Height. But whatever, if you study ancient religions, you realize what we don't know about what they believe far outnumbers what we think we know. In fact, we have oftentimes have what you know is wrong. But right now, on every continent on the planet, people are worshiping Jesus, time zone specifically, probably, even Antarctica, because we've got stations there, and there are people of faith that are worshiping Jesus. If you're in Antarctica, take a selfie, and if you see our feed, send it to us. Uh, probably not, but that'd be cool. Uh, I'll send you a Christmas card, too. Um, but we, 
there's no end to people's speculation. There's no end to growing scholarship about our belief system because having a belief system that was embodied in the human experience and lived out by humans about a God who became human flesh and dwelled amongst us has made, I don't want to say concrete, it's enfleshed us. It's organically invaded the human sphere of existence saying spiritual and physical together. In this physical existence, eternity is about it being repaired and renewed. Not God blows it all up and says, screw you guys, and starts up and gives us a Casper the Friendly Ghost ethereal existence. Listen, God is not going to move from complex, interesting stuff to boredom. He's not like that. He's, we're going to get an upgrade here, guys. The life I live in the body, I live by faith. But before that, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I, but Christ lives in me. Now, obviously, Paul was a distinct person with a distinct personality from every other Jesus follower who's ever walked the earth. He's not saying he became a Jesus robot. What he's saying is he became one cell in this incredible body of Christ that in his own way embodied this Jesus story and improvisationally was able to live as Jesus lived because he studied the story and he asked the Holy Spirit, help me do it myself. He even was able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. He wasn't saying become Paul and no one has really become a Paul. Paul is a singular being as you are and I am. But he said, zealously, live off this story. This story that doesn't mean you convert your culture. This story that means you find out what does this story do in your culture, to your culture, through your culture, at your culture, transforming your culture, maintaining diversity, jettisoning the bad parts. Wow. I, how many cultures have existed since humans have existed? Imagine seeing every culture redeemed by Christ. That's our mission. Tell the story, become the story, and allow the Holy Spirit to empower the story to fill people. If peop you're shaming people, you're filling them with a disembodied set of premises, not head to heart to hand. And oh, I, I, had, I, I got distracted earlier. I was talking about science and the life I live in the body, live by faith and head heart to hand. Basically, uh, uh, neuroscience, one of the revolutions. There's a book, classic book now, called Descartes' Error. And it was about how then modern, I think this was the early 90s, neuroscience was discovering that there's no cognition in the human mind that isn't emotional as well as uh, logical. That every bit of thinking we do is inextricably tied to our emotions and we need emotions to process information. This separation you know, the Bible's always demonstrated it. Jesus lived it. There was actually, I remember, I, I, I was aware of this uh, Christian tradition that used to call emotional people emotionalists. And they said, we, we, we hold to the truth. And what they meant truth is they meant we hold to these facts. Because once again, you can tell, take the same set of facts and tell two different stories. Uh I can look at myself in the mirror after a shower and say, "I'm oh man, look at my body. Look at what, you know, I used to be 20, 
Now I'm 50 and I definitely don't like this. I can factually analyze elements of my body existence and hate on myself, but it's factual, but it's not true. True is God loves me as I am and he's going to redeem my body. And he says, you come as you are. He says, come to me, those who are weak and weary and 50 year old bodies, and I will give you rest. The truth is God loves us. The facts can tell two different stories. And people who use these distilled facts from the Bible to bully others are not telling you the truth. They're misusing the facts because the facts are only true if they're organized within the story of God loves you. So this church tradition that would insult emotional people, or if people started crying during worship or raising their hands, they'd be like, oh, you know, this is just, that's pathetic and anti-intellectual. And I said, what do you do at Buckeye Games, guys? I mean, come on, if you can't you get enthusiastic for everyone else, let's give Jesus some of our emotions too. And it ends up, they're, they're hubris to think that they were the intelligentsia. And we realized, you just got science, bro. Science just handed your rear end to you. All cognition is emotional. But let's take this one step further. It's embodied too. We can have all these thoughts in our mind, but unless we live out those thoughts, they aren't real. I can have the thoughts. I can have a delusion that I am a Superman and I can fly and all these things. But guess what? Unless I'm flying, I'm not Superman. I can in my head, in my heart, think I am Superman. But unless I'm flying, unless I have heat vision, unless I uh, have uh, this big red cape, that is deflects bullets, I'm not Superman, whether I think it or feel it, even if I can have a rational proof for why I'm Superman. You gotta fly if you're Superman. In the same way, if you believe something, you think, feel it, and it's embodied in your actions. Because if you really have embraced a, God, the, a story that in a visceral way is demonstrate God's love to you, it will change your life. You'll still screw up royally a lot. Listen, I, I could write countless volumes of my screw-ups, but I believe God has dissuaded me from that. I, I try to spend more of my time hearing, I love you, Jeff. Here's an opportunity for you to love someone else.